Uh, Father, let it not be lost on our weak and weary minds that your word is open before us. It's already that we have a display of great mercy and grace, and in particular your love that desires to make all things known to us. And so, Lord, we thank you for that. We want to cherish that. We want to revel in that. We want to we want to squeeze every ounce of blessing you have out of this word that we're going to look at together as your children. Um, Lord, and we're counting on you to do the work that only you can do through your word. We trust that even as we read it and apply it to ourselves, it's it's not going to be read and returned to you void. It's got work to do by the power of your spirit working within us Lord make us to discern these spiritual realities and to understand your voice this is all active and present and so we hope now in this hour that you would reveal that be active and present to us the power of your word in Jesus name we pray amen Well, as you can see, the title of this is An Encouraging Election. And uh, while we're used to in this country, maybe not having so many of those encouraging elections, uh, this election that we're talking about today is the most encouraging, brings the most hope for all of life. It is a doctrine or a truth of Scripture that is meant to comfort us give us confidence, secure us, and bring God ultimate glory for those things that Denny spoke about, for the things that he's done before we even existed, the things that he knew about us and promised to us before we even existed, the things that only God can do and keep and hold together that then get applied to our lives through no special existence that we have of our own, but because he decided by the counsel of his will to direct his saving love and grace towards his people. So we approach a season in which we meditate on and reflect on and, and praise and worship and sit in the, the passion of our Lord, the, the revelation of what was promised all along, his atonement for our sins, his real active accomplishment of clearing the slate to make us reconciled to God. And I believe the fact that he had real names in mind on the cross, that if you are one of his, he had your name and your sins with him on the cross, as certainly he had my name and my sins with him on the cross. God accomplished something for his people before they ever knew they were his people, both Jew and Gentile alike. And so what we have in verses 9 through 11, Paul is saying to bring his people in Thessalonica ultimate encouragement. And when I mean ultimate encouragement, I mean I have never, ever Uh, gained so much encouragement and hope than when I I grasped the 
fact that God loved me before the foundation of the world. Not only that, but that that love does not fall short, but that it hits its mark every time and accomplishes the end to which he set out to love me, to make a dwelling with me or to with us as his people. And when God sets out to do something, it doesn't get messed up, it doesn't get thwarted, it doesn't get something thrown in and, and creates chaos in his plan. No, we have to understand that God reigns in absolute sovereignty. And if we're going to use that word as the apostles used that word, as, as the very earliest form of the church uses that word, we have to understand that it is an overarching, accomplishing power that exists only in his person. You know, they call the Queen of England the sovereign, and they have very specific reasons for doing that. But it's not exactly true, is it? If, if I'm going to use such a word, then the, then the definition is going to be uh, overarching and have no bounds and have uh, no borders. It's, it's going to be without being hindered. God is that father to us who reigns in ultimate power and authority. So not only are we to derive ultimate encouragement and comfort and confidence from this doctrine of election, but we are also to understand that that means that he will carry us to the end. And that is how Paul is going to end this letter. And, and, it's, and it's because not only do the Thessalonians need this, but we need this. That when we face discouraging elections, when we face discouraging circumstances, and when we face discouraging events, even due to our faith, that we derive ultimate comfort and solidarity and surety with the fact that God obtained our salvation and applies it for all time. And only he can do that. I remember having a discussion early this week somebody that was unsure because of their understanding of the scriptures that yes, the Lord might talk about being able to keep us till the end or to hold his people secure until the end. And then there's also discussion about make sure you don't fall away and, and, and make sure you obey these things and all that sort of thing. And I think when you come to those two realities in scripture, what you have to understand is everything that the Lord talks about in holding us together and, and building us up in Christ and completing the work that he started in us is, is the overarching theme that gets placed on top of the human responsibility that we all have to, uh, to recognize how he's enabled through his spirit those things to take place so that we are not coming to our responsibility as his children uh, naked or without help, or, or blind, or without power to do it. But in fact, he has provided everything for it to be done. And not only has he provided everything for it to be done, but he makes sure those things uh, get enacted in our lives so that it gets done. 
I can put a bat and a ball in front of my kids, and there I've provided them a way to play baseball. But unless I make sure they know how to swing and know how to throw and know how to catch and understand the game, we might not ever get actual baseball out of it. Probably broken windows and broken faces and stuff like that, but we won't get baseball. So the Lord brings to us, by his electing purposes, his spirit to his people, and then makes sure that that works for our good. And, and one way he does that is by bringing conviction when we aren't paying attention to what he is teaching and showing us. All this to say that if the Lord has, has brought a relationship and intimacy with him to you by his grace and mercy, uh, you're sealed and uh, connected to him forever. There is no turning back. You are supposed to derive ultimate comfort and security and safety from that realization that he will not forsake you nor leave you. If he's sending his son to die specifically for you, then you think he's going to let that go to waste? No is the answer. No. And we are supposed to use these truths to combat the lies of the enemy. That would say things like, well, God doesn't really care about you. I mean, that may have been something that he did, but, uh, you know, it's probably not that effective for you because you're such a sinner. Or, man, you really messed up. I think, uh, I think the Lord let you go. I don't think he's holding you in his hand anymore. And we hear these things, don't we? I know you do. I hear them. And we are to take the truths or the sword of the spirit, which is his word, and we are supposed to combat the lies and the evil one. We are supposed to knock down those flaming arrows of lies and untruths that seek to take our comfort and encouragement away. And we are supposed to take these words and give them to each other so that you and I are mutually encouraging one another with these realities. And so this morning we come to this reality and this is one of the most beautiful truths in all of scripture. It is the language that every single apostle of Christ uses when they write to make sure that we know that we are his both now and forevermore. You're being persecuted. That doesn't mean you're not his. In fact, that may be very good evidence that you are his. You sick? That doesn't mean you're not his. If he purchased you with the blood of his son, you specifically, he knows you. Then why would we ever believe anything different? And in fact, you know, I, we, we're going to refer to Romans 8 throughout my whole ministry because it is, it is the magnum opus of all of Paul's theology, all of Paul's, uh, that he knows about truth. It's all put together there for us. And, and one of the most beautiful things that Paul's doing in Romans 8 is bringing encouragement and comfort by the fact that you are rock solid 
in your relationship with God, not because of you, but because of God. And he will make sure that your life mirrors that. In other words, you'll be more than conquerors through him who loved you in the midst of persecution and nakedness and famine and peril and sword. And a lot of times we're tempted or sometimes even taught that, that somehow we can be disconnected from God who purchased us on the cross. That's a lie from the pit of hell. He knows you. He's known you before you were even a thought. So in verse 9 of 1 Thessalonians 5, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I believe he's picking up on verses 4 and 5, in which he's assuring them that they are not in darkness. They're not going to be surprised by the coming of the Lord. They are children of light. We are not children of darkness And he's assuring them again in verse 9 that, look, you are not destined for wrath. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 4, he's telling them, I know God chose you because of these things. And then he lists those things, and he's encouraging them, and he is uh, giving testimony to their faith. Like, I've seen it, guys. It's real. Therefore, I know that he's chosen you. And if he's chosen you, then he's not going to let you go. In Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 5, he uses this language with them. Starting in verse 3 of Ephesians 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. So you see what this is for? We are meant to praise him. We're meant to worship him. We are meant to be in awe of his grace by the fact that it was unmerited, but placed on you specifically as a person that God knew before the foundation of the world. That you were made for this. Anybody ever said that to you? You're good at whatever, and they're just like, man, I think you were made for that. And it is so contrary to our nature to, to, to hear God say that you were, you were made to obtain salvation. And you think, oh, wow, I'm really far from that. And you're saying that you created me for that? He's saying, yeah. Well, what? I, I'm not worthy of that, right? That's why it's salvation. Because you were made, and you sinned. You followed the nature of fallen man, and you gave way to the flesh to 
disbelieve God and to put yourself in his place. But you're going to glorify me through becoming my people when you were not my people. To show the true, awesome power of God to turn sinners and enemies into sons and daughters. The whole universe will marvel at this. Angels, Peter says, long to look at these things. They're blown away that God would pluck people out of their sin and give them life when they were dead. While we were still enemies, the Bible says, Ephesians 2. At the right time, Christ died for us. Romans 8 talks about, you know, one might scarcely die for a righteous man or for a good man. And paraphrasing here, a Darby paraphrase. Um, but he died for somebody that's not righteous. Somebody that's not friendly. For somebody that's perverse, wicked. And made you, made you, while you are still cursing and not looking for God, made you a child of his. He, he destined us for wrath. He set that before us, before the foundation of the world. In chapter 1, verse 10, we're told that, that Jesus Christ saves us from the wrath to come. The real uh, enemy, the real uh, terror that we face <laughs> as soon as we're born is, is the wrath of God due sin. Right? It's not hell. What is hell? Hell is the utter torment and agony of the fact that God is exercising his wrath on us in an unending, unquenchable way to where there is all hope extinguished. I preached that to uh, kindergartners through high schoolers this week. That got their attention. That, that hell is not pitchforks and devils with horns. It's worse. It's worse. It's unquenchable wrath. And you know, Paul speaks about this. Speaks about this at length. We, we have to understand what we've been saved from and why. And, and why only some? Is that the question we have when we come to election? Why only some? Well, that used to be the question that I would ask, and then I learned a new question. Why any of us? Why anybody? It's, it's mind-blowing. In Romans 9, 15 through 23, where he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? 
But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared hand for glory, prepared beforehand for glory. I'm not going to argue that this is a hard truth, that God has a will and a way that are so different than what we view as right or fair, but it all hinges on how you're going to approach that. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone able? In fact, if you go to Romans 3, which is quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, you're going to understand that there's nobody righteous. Not only that, no one seeks God. Nobody wants him. That's our nature. That's who we are. We, we don't look to him to do anything for us, to save us. We are at, at ease and in, in this temporary comfort being his enemy. That's where we live naturally. Until he breaks in to that terrible existence, that dead heart and that awful frame of mind, and reveals to us his grace and his mercy through Jesus Christ. And when he does that, then we are able to understand why. Why was I ever an enemy of God? And then you understand what sin did to you. Sin kept you separated by this great chasm from the Lord. For he alone is holy and righteous and only will dwell in the midst of a holy people. And so if I was that way, if that was my heart, if that was my mindset, if that was my existence, then I had no shot at dwelling in the holy presence of the Lord my God. But if the Lord were to reconcile that somehow, then I may be able to dwell in his presence forever. That's why David says, make me to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Make me. The supreme unreachableness of his holiness is beyond human comprehension. That's why. That's why he derives glory from coming down to save dead sinners to make his enemies his children. He comes down so we can marvel and give him glory. He comes down uh, in, in, in a way that is almost in human concept unbecoming of what is holy. He comes down to dwell in the midst of a leprous, uh, whorish people. He comes down to take us from where we were and bring us into a new existence. He does it. It's, it's Israel in the wilderness. He burst in 
He appoints and calls Moses and Aaron. He, he sets up a, a situation in which his people will be delivered and his enemies destroyed. And he derives glory by leading his people into the promised land. And he gives them directives for holiness. And he gives us, who are to be called even greater in the kingdom of heaven than John the Baptist, he gives us his Holy Spirit to actually walk in holiness. And he tells us, I've prepared these good works for you. I've enabled it by my spirit. Walk in them. He, he has destined these Thessalonians. Paul is sure of it by the evidence of their faith. Uh, he's destined those of you in this room that are his for salvation through Jesus Christ. Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God delivered him up. God decided that it should be and human sin was the tool through which that came, so that he might redeem those who are able to kill him by their wicked hearts. And so therefore he expresses ultimate sovereign power even over our ability to sin. Our, our inventiveness of evil, our ability to look at the most pure, perfect human being to ever walk the face of the earth and decide, I need to put some nails in those hands. I need to string them up naked on a sinner's cross like a curse from God. Do you begin to understand, to see that God has to break into a situation like that? If we have fallen that far, if we have missed the mark that short, it's only going to be by a miracle of God that any of us would ever come back from that. And guess what? He does that. That was the whole purpose in creating us. Some of us, these vessels of righteousness and mercy, all of it to display how amazingly gracious he is when he has all power and all authority to extinguish all of his enemies from the face of the earth and from existence completely. And he doesn't do it. He withholds judgment from some, and he makes them his people. And for all of time, what are we going to do? We're going to praise the lamb who was slain, because that is, that is God saving his people from his own wrath. And so at the cross, it's, it's quite under uh, the, the genius of God, that's even a small word, to even make the cross intersected like this. Because at the intersection, you have both love and wrath. You have God being the just, punishing sin, and the justifier, making us righteous, making us justified in his sight as only Jesus is. 
by giving us all of his credit and taking all of our debt. It's a transaction that is impossible except for God, except in God. And the most comforting thing when you become a Christian is to understand that he made you to receive that. But when I realized this, it was startling and and terrifying because I, I, I realized that I had been completely hopeless and helpless. And unless he did what he did, I would remain an enemy and have to uh, suffer under the unquenchable agony of his wrath forever. I can't do that. But I also can't become his child. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus can't figure that out. And he says, you're a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? In other words, election is from the beginning. As as we've already read in Ephesians, that before the foundation of the world, he's going to do this. And he's done it through Jesus. So Jesus becomes our Lord. We understand that we have obtained salvation not because we're awesome, but through Jesus. So we praise Jesus. We speak of loving Jesus. We worship Jesus. We we are presented in the heavenly places in Jesus. We are told in this life to put on Jesus. Because he's the rightful heir. He's the righteous son. We're not. But he invites us into that. He makes us into that by his love, by his grace, by his electing power to take an enemy and make it a child. He does it. And Paul is is perfectly comfortable telling us at all times, yes, be awake, be sober, be loving, and God will surely do it. How did the two realities exist at the same time? They exist because God has provided and God makes aware and God makes able and yet we are responsible to walk in those things. And then Paul can't, Paul can't speak of Jesus without speaking about what he did. He just can't. <laughs> Anywhere he starts to mention Jesus' name or, or the Christ or Lord, he has to at least even briefly explain to us what he did. So in verse 10, it says, who died for us? Who died for us? We obtained salvation through a Lord who died for us. So, so God, knowing you and, and knowing how he's going to save you from the foundation of the world is, is knowing that his son is going to be put to death. You're going to live a sinful life, and my son's going to die for it. 
Do you begin to see God's love? He knew exactly what I was going to do. He knew every thought and every sin. He knew how it was going to work out and what I was going to do. And he was even restraining some of that and, and uh, using that and, and molding that. And then he's going to save me. When I've profaned his name in such a way, he's going to save me because he chose to love me. He decided that. I didn't. Romans 5, 6 through 9. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. If, if, if God is the, the reigning supreme power, reason, ability, why salvation happens, then we know that we know that he has uh, not only excused us in like a simple manner, but he has saved us, moved us out of his path of wrath and into his, his affection, the light of his glory. And when we sit in those things, God gets the supreme glory. When we meditate on those things, God gets the glory. His people sing praises to him. Understanding in and of myself, this is nothing but an enemy of God. But he is complete, holy, awesome Savior. Who gets the glory? He does. Saved. Saved. Meditate on that word. Think about what that means. Who died for us so that there's a reason why this happened. Whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. As Wayne mentioned in Sunday school this morning, there was some teaching uh, the Thessalonians are whispering to them uh, that maybe Jesus already came and got his people and you missed the boat, so to speak. And, and Paul's correcting some of that. He's saying, no, no, listen. If, if God chose you to, abstain, to obtain salvation through Jesus, you've got it. That means if you've been saved from the wrath of God, what's left? The grace, mercy, and righteousness, and holiness, and love of God. You have that. You have it in Jesus because it was obtained through Jesus. And not only that, but you go back to the Old Testament and see that his desire is to dwell with his people. That's the point of the temple. That's the point of the tabernacle. And that's fully realized in Jesus, who is the dwelling place of God with his people. So that whether we've already passed on or we're still living, we're with him at all times. He saves and remains in that relationship. You know, he doesn't run around and give you a, like a get-out-of-hell-free card, like in Monopoly or whatever, get-out-of-jail-free. He doesn't just hand that out and then run on to the next person. No, he, he stays and he works and he molds and he makes and he prepares you for 
the, the holy dwelling of God in heaven. And so we praise him. We worship him. We look to him. We depend on him to do this because we have these responsibilities and in this mysterious way under the sovereignty of God, we have this call to do these things and to be these things and to put on Christ and all the sort of stuff that can make you feel burdened until you realize that he remains in contact with you so intimately that he said he's going to complete the work that he started. That he's not going to leave you or forsake you. Peter says it this way, um, according to his great mercy, 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now listen to this. Who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded in your faith by God that you would obtain and see the salvation. Otherwise, if it was something that you were able to purchase, you were able to obtain, you would surely lose it. That's why it requires God to guard it, because he gave it. He's going to make sure that gift endures to the end. What a comforting thought. We're always with him. He goes on to say in 1 Peter chapter 1, that though you do not now see him, you know him and you love him. Why? Because he loved you. He loved you. He made himself known to you. He loved you in a way that he doesn't love the world. You can say that he loves the world. The Bible says that he loves the world. He's presented his gospel to the world. He's, he's presented gospel fruits to the world. But he loves you in that specific salvific way that carries you through everything to the end. That doesn't happen with the whole world. And what's, what's Paul want out of all this? He wants us to encourage one another with these words. That's why he says in verse 11, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Just as you are doing. So I wrote in my Bible that predestination or election is for the encouragement of the church. It's for the encouragement of the church. You want to know why? Because of John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this. Back in verse 27. It says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
He gave us life in, in a way that you can say your parents gave you life. But the life that God gives is eternal. And the life that God gives is not able to be extinguished. And the life that God gives is kept in heaven for you, as we've already read. The life that God gives is everlasting. He's a God of the living. He will not lose you. He will not lose sight of you. He will not lose hold of you. And if you are to endure hard things, he will carry you through that and make you more than a conqueror. So that when most of you have gone through extremely difficult things and you come out the other side praising God, full of the Spirit, understanding the victory uh, that Jesus has won over that and over your sure inevitability to crumble under those dark things, you come to the other side able to praise God because he was with you through it all and made you, made you an overcomer. And so then we return praise back to him. And he receives again all glory and it helps us sing to him better, helps us to look to him more, helps us be dependent children who will surely look where our power and our hope are derived from and therefore be fruitful because he's life. Just a word in closing here, just because uh, we often wonder this. As this is true in the scriptures, that God has chosen us to obtain salvation, if he's did that, if he's going to accomplish that, then, then why does it matter what we do with this gospel? Why do we risk our lives going to the ends of the earth to do something that God's going to do for his people, no matter what? And here's Paul's thought on why we are so evangelistic uh, as we understand God's surety in saving his people. Why this would spur on evangelism instead of diminish it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Paul's been talking about how he's enduring all these things for Christ, how he's like, an athlete who is competing, um, how he's in chains, how he's suffering, how this is just hard to do what God's called him to do with this gospel. And he says in verse 10 of 2 Timothy chapter 2, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, the comfort is in predestination and election that we are God's by his choosing, period. And that God has therefore sealed us and holds us together. What we have obtained in Christ can never be taken away from us. No one's able to snatch, it out, snatch us out of his hand. Therefore, therefore, we are unafraid and unashamed with the gospel that we carry because our hope is secure. So we go and take it where God is using us as, as an instrument to take it. 
unafraid, unashamed. We cross enemy lines. We go into dark territories because we know with confidence that God will accomplish his salvation of his church. He will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Therefore, Paul can say, I endure everything for the sake of those that he is saving. I don't know who they are. That's why I go where he tells me to go and why I do the hard things he tells me to do because he's going to get the gospel to them, period. What about the people in the African village who've never heard the gospel? If God has chosen them to obtain salvation, a missionary will be sent at great lengths to bring them the gospel. I assure you that. God will get his children home. So I call you to be comforted by that. And I call you to grab hold of that great and awesome truth and therefore give God much glory and hold much confidence in your life that is in Christ.